And you may be seated. And uh, just want to tell you, uh, we are going to be talking about First Thessalonians chapter four, verses three through eight. If you're unfamiliar with that, if we so we're making our way through the book of First Thessalonians, it's going to be dealing with issues of sexuality. Okay, and so. Kids, you want to go make your way to Kids Church, all right? And all you need to do, we got Miss Carrie in the back there. There she is waving. Uh, she was actually up here leading worship. Uh, that's first through fourth grade. Uh, if you're new here or maybe kids generally are in here, this might be a really good day for them to go to Kids Church or you might have a very interesting car ride back home today. But whatever you want to do, all right? So kids will go there. If you're new and you want to just follow all the kids back there, they just meet in this large room back here. You'll find out where they meet, and then you can just slip back in here, whatever you'd like to do. And the rest of you, if you want to find your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'd like to ask you, how's your driving going? You know, how, how are you doing? I mean, driving can be such a great experience. I mean, we can go to all sorts of places, see things, get to where we need to be and events because transportation, driving, is, it's so good. It's, if you've got a reliable vehicle and you know some of the basics of the rules of the road, driving can be an outstanding experience. But in order to drive well, you actually have to know some of the basics of how a car runs, right? You need to know how to start it, how to slow it down, how to stop it. Uh, you need to know how to like, use the windshield wipers because if it's raining, it could be pretty dangerous if you don't know how. You need to know how to turn the lights on. I mean, you need to know some of the basics about how your car operates. You need to know how to avoid distractions, how to avoid driving when you're drowsy. Um, you also need to obey the rules of the road. If you want driving to be a really good, pleasurable, profitable experience, you got to know how to stay within the lines. You need to obey the signs. You need to follow through with what those lights on. You need to know what red, yellow, and green mean. Hello, Waco, okay? I mean, you need to know what red, yellow, and green mean, okay? I, I noticed that there's some confusion between the red light and the yellow light and the green light, especially at intersections. You need to understand what that all entails. Uh, but I want you to know that driving, on the other hand, can be really dangerous. If you don't know how to operate your vehicle or you neglect your vehicle, you hear some really strange sounds kind of coming from the tire area, but you never check it out. You never actually have your tires inspected. You don't change the oil or you defy the rules of the road. You ignore all the signs, that old speed limit you kind of think is like a suggestion for people that don't really know how to drive as well as you do. If you defy the rules, you ignore the lines, you don't take care of your vehicle, friends, you are just an accident waiting to happen. You are dangerous, and in fact, you under, need to understand that if you're driving like that, you're likely deadly, either to yourself or to others. And just like driving can be awesome... So can walking with God in this world. But you have to know how it works and how to walk with God. Because, you see, you need to understand some of the basics of life. And if you don't understand the basics of life and life with God, you become like a dangerous driver. You're like an accident waiting to happen. In fact, with a, a group this size, it's likely that we've got tragedy already in our midst. And that is especially true with the passage that we come to today as we make our way through this book. God is going to address the issues of what does it look like to walk with God in the area of sexuality. I'll tell you, there are, I'm going to give you the big three hazards to holiness. Love of money, pride, and sexual immorality. These three have call, caused untold disaster in people's lives. 
families. I mean, and the, the significance of this could not be overstressed. And there are two major reasons for that. One is that I, I think there's actually followers of Christ that are just completely ignorant of what the Scripture has to say about the issues of sexual morality. Uh, there's, there's so many people that, and even churches today, we don't even actually get into the Bible or we're going to skip subjects like this that people don't actually know. But the other one is that people do know or they have some inkling and they want no part of it. They're going to kind of avoid this area of what God might have to say and they're going to do it on their own. So how do you walk with God in a sexualized society? To know the answer to that question, if you can answer it well, biblically, I mean, it's going to lead to freedom, joy, happiness, confidence, spiritual well-being. But if you do not know the answer to this question, it's, you're setting yourself up for a lot of failure. You're going to find heartache, disappointment, discouragement, depression. You're going to cause a lot of pain to yourself and to the people around you. And it can even be generational, the pain that you might cause. So how do you walk with God in a sexualized society? We need to know the answer to that question. That's why this passage is so important. And first thing you need to know, if you're going to walk with God in a society that is sex-crazed like ours, you need to steer clear of sexual sin. Look at this, chapter 4. Remember last week we saw he's talking about how to walk and please God. And he says, you're actually doing it. But he had earlier said, there's some things that are lacking in your faith. And so in verse 3, he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. God's will, God desires to make himself known through his people so that his people display his character. And he says, this is God's will for your life, revealed will your sanctification. That has the idea that you're dedicated, set apart to God and his purposes. And so he says, this is God's will for your life, that the spirit of God shapes you, that your behavior, your lifestyle conforms to those who are growing to the fullness and maturity of Christ. And God uses his word and his Holy Spirit to bring about sanctification. We learn from the word, the spirit of God applies it to our life, we walk in the spirit's strength, and we grow forward. This is God's will for your life. And he would know, he knows how life is meant to be lived because he's the creator and the designer of life. And when we, when we do not walk according to God's divine design, in whatever area, it's what the Bible calls sin. It literally means to miss the mark. It is to live in such a way as to not believe God and his word. And he says, specifically, this is God's will for your life, your sanctification. That is that you abstain or steer clear from sexual immorality. Okay? So this, this phrase sexual immorality. It's the Greek word porneia. It's where we get our word pornography from, and it is a really broad word. It covers a wide variety of subjects under the umbrella of sexual immorality. Basically, if an activity is sexual in nature and it's outside the confines of a marriage between a husband and a wife, no matter what form it takes, if it's a sexual activity and it's outside of marriage, as God defined it, it is porneia. It is immorality. 
And then when he says abstain, the Greek there is actually you continue to do it. It's a long-term way. Whenever the situation arises, you abstain from sexual immorality. And so to give you kind of a broad understanding of what pornea covered, it covered premarital sex, extramarital sex, uh, adultery, homosexuality, lesbianism, sodomy, rape, incest, and unbridled lust. See, God is the one who created sex. He actually created for purposes. And he understands that life is meant to be lived according to his way. And when it comes to sexuality, it is to be exercised in the relationship between one woman and one man who are in covenant, a covenant friendship before God and with each other. I heard Jack Graham, I was driving on the radio, driving and listening to the radio, and I heard him say that God created sex for procreation, recreation, and communication. Okay? And it's within the confines of a marital relationship. And what he's saying here is, if you're going to walk with God, you need to abstain from sexual immorality. Do you think it was hard in the Thessalonian culture? Absolutely. Is it difficult today? Most certainly, because the world's message is that anything goes. In fact, it permeates our society. We live in a sexualized society. I mean, if you just look at our culture, you look at the media, the images, the messages, the music, so much of it is designed to entice, to allure. You look at things that are taking place in newspapers, magazines, the web, and so often it has a sexual allurement. And what's happened in our country is we have basically say that sex outside of marriage, it's portrayed as the norm. Homosexuality is now being legislated as an alternative lifestyle. And that's the culture in which we live. Look what's even happening with our young girls. From an early age, they're actually taught to dress in such a way and to behave in such a way as if to be sexually alluring. I mean, it's on billboards. And you could go into pretty good detail as to what this looks like in our culture. It's like no mystery. We all know it. We face it, and you face it on a daily basis. And the Thessalonians, they existed in that same kind of culture. In fact, I'd have to say that it was a little bit worse. But what God is saying is you need to abstain from sexual immorality because it has a destructive force upon your soul and upon your relationships. And God created sex to be a beautiful expression of love within marriage. In fact, it's it's an essential ingredient to marriage. But when sex is exercised outside of marriage, it becomes destructive. He's the creator, the designer of life. It's kind of like like fire. If you're a parent, you tell your kids to not play with fire, right? You're out camping and you create a fire and they're like, oh, sweet, I'm going to put some sticks and I'm going to put some of this little fuel that we just used to cook our stove and I'm going to pour that in there. And you're like, no, right? Why? Why? Do you tell them to not play with fire because fire is wrong or it's bad? No. Actually, fire is really good. It cooks food. It helps your kids have awesome s'mores. It warms houses. I mean, fire has a lot of really good uses. But fire can be very destructive when used in the wrong ways. And God knows that about sex. Sex used in the wrong way in the wrong context, it's destructive. And I need you to know something. I know that we all face this on a regular basis, 
but God always gives us the way out. God never asks us to do something from his word apart from his spirit. He always gives us the ability to have success. When you face sexual temptation, and you do, let me tell you, there is always a way out. Let me give you a verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. I'm going to give you a, a lot of good fighting verses today. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. It is always better to flee than to fail. Think of Joseph, okay? Joseph, he fleed a situation when Potiphar's wife was given all these overtures and basically telling him to sleep with her. And he runs you think like, wow, God is going to just greatly reward this man for his faithfulness and he ends up in prison, right? He went from a slave to being a prisoner. But I want you to think of the cost that Joseph didn't pay. And think of how greatly God did use this man. But he was faithful. And so you want to respond like him. If you're going to walk with God in a sexualized society, you have to steer clear of sexual sin. Let me tell you something else this text reveals to us. You need to show respect to yourself, others, and God. Look at what he says, verse 4, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel or your body in sanctification and in honor. You see, sex is honorable and is set apart to God when used in the context in which he defines it. And so you see here, this takes you all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God creates everything, and everything he creates, he says, is good. Okay? And he doesn't create good things just for them to be good, but so that those who use it, so people who experience his good things, will actually lead to worship in their lives. So in Genesis chapter 2, we have the situation where God creates woman. And out of the rib of man, he forms and fashions woman, a woman. And, and now Adam sees woman and he goes, wow, at last. Here is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And it says the two became one flesh. And it concludes, you find this in verse, uh, as you look at that section that goes through verse 25, the man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. It was beautiful in God's sight. In fact, this, this covenant relationship they experienced, we find from scriptures that th it could only be dissolved because of divorce, because of either adultery or abuse. And maybe entailed in that is, uh, excuse me, is abandonment, and entailed to that is abuse. But based on this creation account, this is why the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, and Christians have always treated marriage and sex within marriage as a profound expression of covenant companionship. It is beautiful in God's perspective, and it's always, it's face, finds its origins all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. And it is found in the context of one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant marriage relationship. Now, when he, sex, we talk about that sex is good, like we see in the text, that it's, we are to handle ourselves in sanctification and honor. It's good because, first of all, it's a pleasurable activity given to a husband and wife. It's how we have children. And sex is always good because it teaches you to be a servant, to serve another. And when God gives gifts, 
He gives them not so that you just focus on the gift, but ultimately you focus on the giver of the gift, that it leads to worship. So for instance, like food. God doesn't want you just to have food like, oh, this is great, but ultimately he wants food to lead to worship in your life. The same is true of sex. Let me give you this quote by Matt Chandler. We worship God when, while we partake of his good gifts, something occurs in the deepest parts of our soul that forbids glory terminating on the gift itself or on our enjoyment of it, but that runs deeper into and extends out to the giver. Apart from understanding God and worshiping him in this way, everything becomes superficial. We want to worship something. Worship is an innate response, and we are wired for it by God himself. When when receiving gifts and enjoying gifts doesn't ultimately lead to a worshipful life, it ends up being idolatry. Where you just focus on what God has provided. And in essence, if you don't ever lead to worship and thankfulness for what God has provided in your life, you become an idolater and you basically say, God, not really interested in worshiping you. I want your stuff. I'm not really interested in worshiping you. And what Paul is saying here in verse 4, he says, you need to learn how to possess your body in sanctification and in honor. And so the Spirit of God brings about this work where our moral actions start keeping with who we are legally, that we are righteous in God. And do you see that in verse 4? That each of you know how. It has the idea that you have to learn self-control. It doesn't come automatically. That sure be nice, right? But it doesn't work that way. God provides his spirit, but you and I have to have what we could call a vigorous cooperation because we have these internal urges in our body. And they, and they oftentimes want to live in rebellion to God. And so he says, you need to know how. It is something that you learn. And what we do is we find that God, through his word, conforms us to define morality as he's presented in the word. We, on our own, we'd want to define morality by consensus, right? Whatever most people think, and you see this, this is super prevalent in our country. Whatever most people think, this is what the polls tell us, that must be what the new standard is. And so if we as humans are the ultimate authority, that makes sense. But I got news for you. We are not the ultimate authority. God is. And the Bible won't let us go to morality by consensus because the Bible reveals that God speaks and he's revealed himself in his word and morality is defined by him, not humanity. It's something that God reveals. And so he's revealed what sexual sexual morality really looks like. And I want to just have a word to singles. Premarital sexual involvement, what it does is erodes trust. What happens is you're laying a very unstable foundation for marriage because it's now built on compromise rather than commitment. It replaces godliness with guilt. And I know it's very common right now in our country and and throughout the world for people just to live together. And you're like, well, if, if people don't know God, I guess I can understand that. Friends, this is happening all the time with Christians. You need to know you're in violation of the scripture to do that. But even if you just looked at statistics, you're setting yourself up for failure. University of Wisconsin, they uh, 
they, the data from their research, provides a painful bottom line. Couples that live together before marriage increase the odds of divorce by 50%. It's already terrible, and you just increase it 50%. And researchers found that only 15 out of 100 cohabiting couples are married after a decade. If that's what you want, those are the results you're looking for, that's how you do it. You defy God. You go against what his word has to say. Let me give you the positive side on this. One member of a group of male Christian friends and college students, he captured it well, and this is what he said. The facts of life are that the woman I date today may be the wife of one of these other guys in another year or two. My relationship with them is important to me, and I want a strong and positive relationship with both of them if that happens. So I'll tell you this, and you want to remember this principle, whether you are single or married, purity is the pathway to intimacy. Purity is the pathway to intimacy. You want real intimacy in your marriage relationship. Future, if you're single, or if you're married, it's found in purity. But Satan, he gladly uses sexual sin because he knows what a weapon of destruction it can be. In fact, look at verse 5. We're to handle ourselves with honor. But he says, verse 5, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles, speaking of the non-believing, who do not know God. See, the, the culture in which the Thessalonians lived, in which they had been receiving this instruction, I mean, it was filled with immorality. So you had a lot of their idols are, are sexual in nature, okay? So when you look at archaeology and you study idolatry, it's sick. You're like, wow, these were really perverted individuals, and they created gods. Oftentimes, they had a very sexual overture to them. But even in some of their temples, they would employ prostitutes for their worship ceremonies, And in general, I'll just tell you like what it was like for the Thessalonians within the Roman Empire. Sexual activity outside of marriage was quite common. A man oftentimes did not limit his sexual relationship with his wife. Homosexuality was common. Incest was overlooked. Slaves sometimes were kept and sexually abused. And here, you see this? This verse 5 actually gives us the secret for overcoming sexual temptation. A Christian can overcome because, look at verse 5, because you know God. That's the difference. Knowing God, truly knowing Him, not just knowing about Him, but knowing Him personally, enjoying the relationship with Him, that makes all the difference in our life. You see, the great aim uh, is that we have a God-saturated experience in all of life, where we're living under the control of the Spirit, that we're following His Word. And What you really, if you want to experience success, victory in this area, let me encourage you, give yourself fully to the Lord. Remember when we went through the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6, verse 13 said this, and do not go on presenting the members or the parts of your body as sin, as instruments of unrighteousness. You get the image? Don't use any aspect of your body for the things that are unholy, unrighteous, but rather, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members or the parts of your body as instruments of righteousness to God. It's literally all of me is dedicated to all of God. And he says, notice verse six, and that no man 
transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. You see, what, this, what these verses are calling for is that we treat ourselves, others, God, with respect. And he says, make sure that you do not transgress or sin against someone else. You defraud your brother. That word defraud has the idea of it taking advantage of, to cheat, to exploit. And what he's saying there is that sexual sin is really a form of theft. You're exploiting an individual. Premarital sexual involvement in whatever form, okay? Whatever that might entail, it's sin. You're taking sex from someone who doesn't have the right to give it. Pornography, it's theft. God never created us to be attracted and allured and to find some sort of sexual gratification in images. And adultery is literally stealing either from your current spouse or someone else's spouse or from a future spouse. And notice what he says, that no man transgress and defraud his brother, okay? Has the idea of fellow believers, but really is a word that could even be used for fellow citizens. And I don't want you to miss this. What does the text say? In this matter, who will deal with it? Verse 6, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. What did Paul talk about when they were working with these brand new believers? They talked about this issue about how important it is because God is the avenger. You're going to have to deal with him. He is going to bring the judgment. To reject God's word in this matter basically means that you and I are setting ourselves up to have God address it in our lives. It's kind of like driving. This guy by the name of Derek Newbery, when he was 16, he finally got his license. And the first time he asked his dad for the keys, uh, got, got the yes, and you know how that is. You know, parents, like, their prayer life just, just goes up like that, right? You know, and you see this, and you're like, oh, what is going on here? And, the, and what do you do when you, like, first get the, those keys, right? Well, I mean, you got to celebrate, so you go to a fast food restaurant, right? And that's exactly what he does. And he, and he gets to a fast food restaurant, and he realizes that he's actually never negotiated kind of going through a drive through before. And you see those poles and this big, huge box there and uh, other cars. He decides, I think I'm just going to park here, and I'll run in and go get my food, right? So he does, and he gets this delightful meal, you know. I mean, you can get a lot of really good food for about $4.99. And he comes back to the car, and he's, he's this is a successful trip, and he's pulling out of the parking place when... All of a sudden, look, he hit the car that was right next to him. So he pulls back in the spot. Looks, the other car is not damaged, but his dad's car, the headlight is all torn apart. And he's, he's actually wrecked his dad's car. And he, this is his first time driving by himself. He's like, what am I going to tell my dad? And he quickly starts to understand that, you know, driving a car like this, it's powerful. And you need to learn how to control it and how to guide it and how to use it. Friends, it's a lot like sex and your sexual drive. It's powerful, but if you do not know how to control it, how to live in a sanctified, honorable way to respect others, yourself, God, it'll be dangerous, and we're going to have a lot of wreckage. Now, you need to understand if you're a Christian, you're not under condemnation, but however, that does not free you from the harvest of sorrow when you sow seeds to the flesh. 
Remember David? I mean, King David, godly man. Do you remember, though, kind of later in life, he actually commits adultery. If you want to read about all the gory details, they're written there in full color, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And, and, it, and it brought about a great chastening by God. I mean, he became deceitful. He became a murderer. He was living in lies. He had this intense eternal strife. Now, when David was confronted with his sin, okay, remember, God has a way of confronting you with your sin. In this case, he brought a prophet, Nathan, who told him a story. And he realized that that story had everything to do with him and his sin. God always has a way of addressing it. Why? Because he's the avenger. And, you know, and David was repentant. And you can read about that in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. I encourage you to do so. To see not only the brokenness and the hurt and the pain in his life, but the forgiveness. But you also need to understand that he reaped some rather painful experiences because of that. God is the avenger on this issue. And he seems to make a special point of it. I mean, look what's even happened even just a few months ago. August 18th, 2015, they call themselves the Impact Team. And what they are are computer hackers. And they hacked into uh, a site called Ashley Madison, and they released more than 30 million users. What is that, Ashley Madison? Well, I think we know now. Most of us had no idea what it was until it was all over the news. It's a site designed to set up extramarital affairs. It had over 30 million people. Creates, it's created huge havoc in our country. Lots of, like, even Christian leaders and pastors, they're done. Because guess what? They were released. You need to remember David, Samson, and Judah. I, I do not want you to miss this. The Lord is the avenger in all these things. Why? Because people are made in his image God is the one who's created him. And he will not, whether they're a believer or not, tolerate them being abused or treated with dishonor. He's the God of justice. Let me give you a verse. In case this isn't strong enough, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all people. All people includes believers and even non-believers. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. He's going to do it. And as a pastor, I've been a pastor for quite a few years now. I've been involved in multiple scenarios where sexual morality has occurred. And I got one word for it. It's trauma. It is trauma to the individual. It is trauma to the spouse trauma to the boyfriend or the girlfriend. It is trauma to the family, your parents. They never, ever think about the consequences of grandparents, nephews, and nieces. Satan has a way of just kind of blinding you and fixing you like, don't you want this? And it creates widespread destruction. It's like taking a hand grenade and just blowing things up. And you know, uh, you don't have to go that way. You can go God's way if you'll treat yourself and others and you treat God with honor, reverence, and respect. In Leadership Magazine, Randy Elkhorn wrote this article called Consequences of a Moral Tumble. And he wrote, whenever he was feeling particularly vulnerable to sexual temptation, he finds it helpful to review the effect of such action could have. And these are some of the things he mentions. Grieving the Lord who redeemed me, one day having to look Jesus in the face and give an account of my actions, inflicting untold hurt on your best friend and loyal wife, losing her respect and trust, 
hurting my beloved daughters, destroying my example and credibility with my children, and nullifying both present and future efforts to teach them to obey God, causing shame to my family, creating a form of guilt awfully hard to shake. Even though God would forgive me, would I forgive myself? Wasting years of ministry training and experience for a long time, maybe permanently, undermining the faithful example and hard work of other Christians in our community, possibly bearing the physical consequences of diseases, possibly causing pregnancy with the personal and financial implications, causing shame and hurt to my friends, especially those I've led to Christ and discipled. And he says that's just a partial list of the consequences. It doesn't even begin to factor in the other person that's involved and how that will affect them. What you want to do, friends, is show respect to others, to yourself, to God. And I'll tell you this, when we can really enjoy people when we see and treat them as individuals made in the image of God. So you want to walk with God in a sexualized society? Well, you want to stay clear of sexual sin. You want to show respect to yourself, others, and God. And finally, look at verses 7 and 8. You want to stand strong through the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 7. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You see that? God has given you his Holy Spirit. Like it says in Galatians 5.16, but I say to you, walk by the Spirit. Walk dependent upon the Spirit, and you shall not carry out the desires of the flesh. So let me give you some real practical ways of experiencing God's victory in all of this. I learned this when I was a brand new believer from a college kid. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. This is how you treat people. He says, do not sharply rebuke an older man. This is chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 in 1 Timothy. But rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Try that on. Try that kind of family uh, rubric on as you're dealing with people. It'll free you up. Uh, you want to make a conscious, ongoing choice not to go there physically or mentally when it comes to immorality. Here's another text, Job 31.1. Job said this, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Or Romans 13.14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Now we read this, but there's going to be very few people in this room that are unscathed by some sort of sexual sin. There's a reason why it's completely quiet in here. It's like this hits us at the core. I've got amazing news for you. It's called the gospel. You see, God, through the virtue of the work of Christ, makes you clean, renews you, gives you a new start, new hope when you and I trust in him. I can give you 100% guarantee that you are going to be tempted in this area. It's going to happen. I wish it didn't, but it will. The question is, how are you going to respond to it? I want you to know, though, that forgiveness is found in trusting in Christ. But please, now that God's got your full attention, do not let your heart be hardened. Let me give you Romans 2, 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Do you see how good and kind God has been to you? It's always meant to lead us to repentance. 
And like 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God never sees us in our sin. He sees us united to us, united in his son. He loves us and he loves us unconditionally. And he wants us to see ourselves and see others how God sees them. That is a life of worship. You see, it's not about what you've done so much as who Christ can make you. And next week, we're going to talk the whole, whole Sunday about what does it look like to come to Jesus, even with sexual sin and, and the problems that are associated with that. But I can tell you this, even in the mixed, midst of a sexualized society, we can confidently walk with God when we are actively trusting in Christ. This page in our Bible, it's life. How does the Spirit of God, you see that in verse 8, how does the Spirit of God really help you? Well, to begin with, he creates desires for an appetite of the Word. It's the Spirit of God that reminds us of who we are in Christ, and at times of temptation, reminds us of the truth of God's Word. And furthermore, it's not just giving us information. God literally empowers us with his Spirit so that we can follow through. So we take the way of escape. And God also gives us the body of Christ. We have a regeneration group for men in our church. It doesn't matter what your addiction might be. If you want help, you want to grow, you want to be with other brothers, you just contact one of the pastors and we will get you a part of this group because this group is so helpful. I've heard the testimonies of men in this group of what God has done as they've experienced what it means to really be in Christ. And I tell you, if you're a woman, we've got a brand new soul care group called Lord, I Want to Be Whole, the Power and Prayer of Scripture in Emotional Healing. Get started February 2nd, Tuesday mornings for the sole purpose that we experience the health and the healing that's found in Jesus. You want to teach your children or the people you disciple how to be sexually pure? How do you do it? You model a healthy marriage relationship. You model and tell them and show them what does it look like to walk and please God. And let me tell you something else. You got to talk about these issues. You have to address them. Like, for instance, uh, you got kids ages like 10 to 13, we have that passport to purity, that milestone, keep watching, we'll give another one on this, where you actually spend a weekend addressing these issues so that your kids can walk in the goodness of Jesus. Well, the question is, though, what are we going to do? You know, for the Thessalonians, they experience the joy of knowing Christ in this area. And this pattern, it has a lot of modern-day parallels. Pastor Eugene Peterson wrote in a book, about a, a woman that was in his church. Uh, she had come, she came from a completely non-church background, and she had learned about Christ, believed the gospel, had been baptized, and was growing, was super receptive. Uh, there was just one thing that puzzled him, because he found out that, that this gal, for several years, had been living with her boyfriend and continued to do so. I'm like, well, what do I do here? And never seemed to kind of come up in conversation. And so finally, uh, uh, one day, he just kind of raised the issue and She's, she's kind of fine with that. Uh, he said, you know, I want you to do this for me. I want you to live celibate for the next six months. She's like, what? Why would I want to do that? She said, just trust me. I think it's important. Well, he learned later that apparently she took him up on his, his recommendation. The boyfriend, boyfriend tolerated that for less than a week. He left. A month later, they were visiting. He didn't mention it, but the following month, she raised the issue. 
And this is what she said, quote, when you asked me to live celibate for six months, I had no idea what you were up to. You asked me to trust you. And so I did. It's been two months now. And I think I understand what you were doing. I feel so free. I've never felt so myself before. Never felt so at home with myself. I thought everybody did what I was doing. All my friends did. I just thought this was the American way. And now I am noticing so many other things about my relations with others. They seem so much more clean and whole, so uncluttered. And you know what? I've been thinking that I might want to get married someday. Thank you. Well, her uh, celibacy, celibacy decision survived the six-month mark. In fact, it went two years. And she eventually found a, a Christian man, and they were married. And Eugene Peterson, he did their wedding. So as you're driving and walking through life, remember, there is so much good that we can enjoy when we go God's way. But be careful. You can really mess this up. So even in the midst of a sexualized society, friends, we can confidently walk with God when we are actively trusting Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this is a remarkable passage. You deal with the issues from your word head on. You give us clear direction. You give us strength in your spirit, and you give us forgiveness in Christ. And Father, if there's anyone here who has never trusted in Jesus, and now you have their full attention, and they see their need, would they just pray with me and say, God, I turn from self and my sin. I ask, Lord, for your forgiveness that's found in Jesus, who paid for my sins. Would you lead my life, be my Lord, And Lord, for all of us in this room, uh, there's no one here that is unscathed by a text like this. So God, we believe the gospel. We believe that we are made whole in Christ, that you cleanse us from all sin. We simply confess, we agree, we seek your holiness, and we have the assurance. We need not live with the stigma of shame or guilt because we walk in the victory of Jesus and the newness of life in him. So God, May we be testimonies of your grace, trophies of your goodness. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.